Arch City Defenders has become a ubiquitous presence in St. Louis's legal community. And now that the group is turning 10 years old, the organization's leaders are looking back at what they accomplished and what's on the horizon. On this edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman and I talk with Blake Strode and Jackie Langdom about Arch City Defenders' impact. Let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. Well, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio from St. Louis is... Rachel Lippman, another one of the political correspondents. And we have two guests today. They're from Arch City Defenders. Our first guest is... Blake Strode, Executive Director. And... Jackie Langham, the Director of Advocacy. And it's been 10 years since Arch City Defenders was created, and we're going to be talking about the impact of this very important legal organization on St. Louis and the rest of the country. Um, I think we're going to start with a basic question. A lot of people that have followed um, criminal justice and and criminal law probably know what Arch City Defenders are. Mm -hmm. But for people that don't, explain what your organization is and what it focuses on. Sure. So Arch City Defenders is a holistic legal advocacy organization, and our mission is really combating the criminalization of poverty and state violence against poor people and people of color in the St. Louis region and beyond. And we've really done that um, over the the 10 years that we've been in existence. We sort of developed four primary tools through which we try to accomplish that. And the first is what we call holistic direct legal services, which we can talk more about. Um, Second, impact litigation third, policy and media advocacy, and then the fourth is what we call community collaboration. So we work with a lot of partners in the community, um, a lot of coalitions and campaigns. And from what I understand, the first couple of years, or the first maybe half, was sort of really more focused on that individual legal advocacy. And I'm wondering where the switch kind of came to to focusing more on the impact, the bigger cases that probably most people know Arch City Mm -hmm. for. So I think I would say it was more of... um, an expansion and and evolution than a switch. Uh, We've always considered and still consider today the direct services to really be at the core of what we do, the relationships that we develop with individual clients, the way in which we do a holistic assessment of all of their needs, both legal and social, and really try to get all of those needs met. That has always been at the core of what we do, but what we've discovered over time is that Um, there are systems at work that are oppressing our clients every day. And if we're not a part of that systemic fight to change those systems and institutions, um, then our clients are worse off. So we really have added on that more systemic advocacy, as you describe, over the years. Now, before we talk more about your organizations, I just wanted the listeners to know more about both of you and your background and how you got to Art City uh, Defenders. Blake, we'll start with you. Sure. So uh, I'm a St. Louis native, um, grew up here, left after high school in 2005, so was gone for about 10 years total. Sorry, were you going to ask something? I was going to jokingly ask this the St. Louis question. Uh, the, the high but, school. You know, That's yeah. okay. Pattonville High School, <laughs> right. Pirates. Go, go Pirates. pirates. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and came back uh, as a Skadden Fellow, which is a, a two-year fellowship um, in 2015. And really, a huge part of what brought me back was the Ferguson Uprising and, and the sort of realization that for the kind of civil rights and social justice work that I was really committed to doing, um, my hometown was the best place for me to do that and, and to use my own sort of skills and apply my own passion. So that's what brought me back to, to St. Louis, and I was fortunate enough to discover Arch City Defenders at that time, which was um, really one of the only organizations that had a kind of deep understanding of systems like the system that was playing out in Ferguson um, due to the relationships that it had developed with clients over time. So I am from Branson, Missouri, and the magic answer is Branson High School. <laughs> <laughs> um, how many high schools are there in Branson? One. Okay. <laughs> I Obviously. was just actually there over the summer, and it was a love. I had a lovely time. It is a great place for families to visit. It is, <laughs> and, the, and my family had a lovely time too. <laughs> and I also know that former Senator uh, Julie Justice is from Branson, Missouri, and she regaled many tales of that town when she served as Senate Minority Leader. So I went to Mizzou for undergrad and went to the journalism school and knew that I wanted to practice law and have tools to do something more for the community and then decided to go to Mizzou Law School um, after journalism school and still wanted to do public interest and started working at Legal Services of Eastern Missouri in 2006, focusing on housing and homelessness work. And so a lot of the cases that Arch City saw and the impact that they saw the courts having on their clients were things I also saw at Legal Services. And so I saw that there was a gap in services and needs in the community that we weren't able to reach and meet at Legal Services. And so I was there for 10, 11 years before I joined Arch City. So I wanted to talk about some of the work that Arch City has done over the past few years. And I think that your organization got a lot of local and national attention after Michael Brown's death in Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Thomas Harvey, who used to work at Arch City Defenders, hammered home to me many times during that period was there was this focus on smallish and largely African-American and fairly poor towns mm -hmm. after Ferguson that had been, um, I would say, engaging in practices that were not so good against mm -hmm. black people and their citizens. But what he was trying to say was, it wasn't just those towns that were bad actors. It was wealthier towns in the St. Louis region that also had problems in with with systemic racism and systemic mm -hmm. governmental issues. And Art State Defender ended up suing a lot of those towns. Yeah. I want you to kind of build upon that because I think for a lot of people that followed Ferguson, they may have thought that only certain towns in North St. Louis County were the problem when it really was a lot more systematic mm -hmm. from, from talking with people in your organization. Um, yeah, so I think there are a couple of um, elements to that. One is that, you know, to your point, people focus on Ferguson, you know, Pine Lawn, um, Wellston, Delwood, some of these smaller, really cash-strapped, tend to be overwhelmingly black, you know, Ferguson perhaps has, uh, of the, the ones I just named, um, is maybe two-thirds or 70% or black now. Um, and those were sort of the focus of a lot of the discussion following the killing of Mike Brown, following the Ferguson uprising. And to be sure, there have been horribly abusive practices in, in those towns of over-policing, over-ticketing, using municipal courts as ATM machines. That has been true in those towns for, for far too long. But one element is that there are other municipalities, to your point, like Maplewood, which we've sued now, Florissant, 
Um, Arnold, Missouri is another town we've sued. There are other municipalities that don't fit the same profile that have engaged in the exact same practices. There are cities like Ladue, where you've historically had some of the largest disparities in terms of if you look at their police stops, the racial disparities are really tremendous in a place like Ladue. We've seen incidents in Clayton recently. We had the um, the Wash U students that were picked up by the police in Clayton. So this is not limited to any sort of any particular type of municipality in the region. It really is widespread. And it's not just something that we see playing out at the municipal justice level. So the place that we've actually now sued more than any other is the city of St. Louis. It's not any of these individual municipalities, although we have sued Ferguson several times. (laughs) Um, And the reason for that is that this isn't just a municipal justice problem. It is a legal system, criminal legal system problem. The way the entire system treats poor people and people of color is fairly consistent. Now, the particular manifestations of that look a little bit different on the municipal level than they do. Um, You know, maybe we're focused on fines and fees in the municipal courts, and we're more focused on cash bail and the workhouse on the state level. But the system itself is, is pretty consistent across the board. I know that, that, Jackie, did you have anything that you wanted to add to, to Blake's points? Or I think it's important for people to visit our local courts, especially mm-hmm. our associate circuit courts, where other than municipal court, that's where most people have contact with the legal system. And just visit court, spend a day in court, maybe an hour, pick up a docket and, and pay attention to what's happening. People don't really realize what's happening in, in court. And also, you look at the demographics of the courtroom, and it tells you a lot about what's happening and how the structures are set in place to... Um, disproportionately impact a certain population. Give an example from a court watching maybe that you've done that most people who have never really had that contact with the court because they can talk their way out of the ticket, someone can fix it for it. What, what do you think people don't know about what happens in those courts that, as you put it, it's a legal system problem? So I'll give an example from landlord-tenant court especially the pro se docket on Fridays, there are hundreds Which of is people who, who are not going with lawyers. Yes, they don't. Uh, the landlord is and the tenant are both not represented. And so what will happen is, is there's hundreds of people on the docket, and it's how can we get as many people through as quickly as possible. And so they have mediators there to help them kind of resolve their problems with usually the end goal of being a consent judgment that's filed with the court. Well, Most people don't realize what a consent judgment means. That could mean there's an eviction on your record. That means you could lose subsidized housing. But quickly, the issue is off of the court's radar and is no longer the court's problem, but could have long-term collateral consequences for an individual just from that one court appearance. The the big thing, I think, that brought... Arch City to the national attention was that white paper that you put out. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, you had done the work on it, published it before, and then republished it after Mike Brown's death. How much traction did Mike Brown's death enable you to kind of get with that? Because the issues were sort of like parallel. They weren't the same, but they were parallel. And I'm wondering if you guys know what the process was to be like, you know what? We're going to kind of seize this moment and take it sort of more broad from police community relations. Yeah, well, there's no question there was a real um, kind of thirst for understanding following the killing of Mike Brown that the white paper was able to help sort of fill a void. Um, So for for those that aren't familiar, this white paper, which was released in, um, I think it was in August, they released it the same month, uh, 2014, which was prepared by by my predecessor, Thomas Harvey, who you've mentioned, um, our 
uh, other co-founder, now special projects director, Michael John Voss, and actually a number of interns that helped sort of collect data and put this report together. It focused on three cities. Ferguson just happened to be one of them. I think it was Ferguson, Bell Ridge, Florissant, I believe was the third. Um, and it talked about this problem of over-ticketing of municipal court revenues generated in these three cities, of the number of warrants to the ratio of warrants to residents, um, and all things that became known after the killing of Michael Brown, that we had this situation in St. Louis County. You know, the most shocking number I always cite is in the St. Louis region, a region of about 1.3 million people, there were, on the day Michael Brown was killed, 700,000 active warrants for arrest, which is just this shocking figure that you have, you know, one for every two people in the region. And that means there were entire communities, many of them focused in, in places like Ferguson, that entire communities were subject to arrest at any given moment in time. And so that white paper, which sort of laid these problems out, I think, came to be a really useful um, tool for people to better understand why it was that so many people were angry at the system, why it was that so many people rightly distrusted the police and courts and jail officials, um, why it was that people saw the entire system as a racket, as a money-making scheme, because in truth it was a money-making scheme and has been for some time. And so I think we've seen a lot of improvement in that system um, and, and a significant really significant decrease in the municipal court revenues and, and tickets and other things. But that, even just looking at that same number where it used to be 700,000, it's now over 200, I think 230 or 250,000 warrants today. And so we still have this really outside system um, that is continuing to criminalize people for, for their race and for their poverty. Well, one of the policy uh, ramifications of of the post-Michael Brown agenda and from the state level was Senate Bill 5, which I think per placed eventually, after courts, 20% cap on the fine revenue that cities could keep in their budgets. And the question I always had about that was, it goes back to my other question, 20% of fine revenue, um, it, it's, it's going to happen in cities that have less diversified sources of revenue mm -hmm. and that are poorer. And then those are going to be the primarily African-American municipalities in North County. Mm -hmm. Like the wealthier municipalities did, never even came close to hitting 20 percent mm -hmm. or even 12.5 percent, but they were still getting lots of fine revenue. So my question and the reason for that long windup was, do you think it was a mistake to go by percentage as opposed to like put a hard number of uh, like, let's say you can only mm -hmm. take $500,000 worth of fines as opposed to percentage? Because it did seem to like let a lot of wealthier municipalities off the hook compared to poorer ones. So, you know, I think you're on to something. Um, my, what I think overall about Senate Bill 5 is it was a pretty modest reform. You know, it, it was helpful <laughs> in a number of ways, um, but pretty modest. And this is one of the ways, you know, this 20% cap um, is one of the ways in which, for all the reasons you're saying, I think it's a pretty modest reform and that we should have gone much further. Um, one of the things, you know, we talked about structural reforms and called for structural reforms like the complete consolidation of the municipal court system in the St. Louis region. Uh, that would go much further than doing something like putting a 20% cap. Um, we talked about decriminalizing, removing entire categories of offenses from the various municipal codes. That, by and large, hasn't happened. 
um, apportioning fines to income because most of the people that pay these fines for these various um, low-level offenses don't actually have any discretionary income with which to pay them. All of those things, I think, would go much further towards um, uh, reducing the sort of injustices created by the municipal um, legal system than, than Senate Bill 5. You're starting to see, and I don't know if it's happening in Missouri, but the conversation about sort of systemic justice reform is shifting to more of a bipartisan issue. Um, is that happening the way it needs to in Missouri? Um, do you think there might be getting more traction to some of those systemic issues? And if it isn't, is it just something about Missouri that is keeping it kind of behind on those conversations? We see some of these changes happening in this conversation happening in the state legislature. But I think I want to make a point going back to Senate Bill 5 is that every single virtually every single legislative session since Senate Bill 5 was passed, there have been attempts to strip that and to move back and work back from it. So um, there's conversations that are happening, but they're not happening um, at the pace that they should be. And they're not appropriately addressing the issues um, that I think we see in the courts on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I I actually listened to part of your conversation with uh, Shamet Dogan, who I know has been leading um, many of the the CJ efforts on the state level. Um, and on the one hand, I certainly appreciate that we have this sort of bipartisan interest in at least recognizing that there's a huge problem of our own creating that needs to be addressed now. Uh, I think there are a lot of tough questions in what the end goal should be and how we get there. And the next kind of terrain, one of the things that I really worry about in this bipartisan conversation about criminal justice reform is that we end up doing things like privatizing parts of the system, that you know we've started having this fight of, around EMAS, this electronic monitoring company in uh, the St. Louis region. And uh, risk assessment tools are a really popular thing now, that there are all of these ways in which we see the system sort of recalibrating um, and potentially just generating new ways of maintaining status quo. And I, I really am worried about that. And I don't know that there's the same, um, I don't even know that that's a partisan thing. I mean, I think there is some bipartisan appetite on both sides for that kind of approach. Um, and, I, and I'm really concerned about that. We'll be back right after this message. And we're back on Politically Speaking. Uh, I want to go back to one of the legal ramifications of Ferguson, and that was the consent decree that was by the Department of Justice. I've been making this point for years, and I am unmoved by, vouch. by anybody <laughs> who argues otherwise. I think the Department of Justice made a monumental mistake by going after just Ferguson and not other cities in the St. Louis region. And I'm gonna read a paraphrase from a 2015 article that I wrote. Throughout the last seven months, African-American residents from all over the region have told their stories about police harassment and intimidation that has gone on for years. If the Justice Department ends up forcing only one city to change its police and municipal court, will the experiences of black St. Louis residents really transform that much? I know I'm not supposed to give my opinions as a journalist. My answer to that is absolutely not, because if you experience things that you experienced in Ferguson and another municipality, and there's not the whole weight of the federal federal uh, DOJ for you for the city to change, the pressure's not going to be there. So you've heard my observation. I want to get. I want to hear both of you uh, respond to that. 
Right. Let me start. Uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, end of end of end of. But I want you. No, you're. I mean, you are absolutely right. Of course, it would be ridiculous to think that the problems of Ferguson were limited to Ferguson. And uh, we actually, Arch City issued a follow-up report to its initial report um, that was called It's Not Just Ferguson. And it <laughs> talked about other cities that were engaging in the same practice. It talked about this sort of um, broader structural view that, I've, that I'm, you know, I've been pointing toward in this conversation. Um, we have to have the appetite to have a much larger, more comprehensive conversation about the way in which we have organized our society in this region, the way in which we have built, literally built institutions to maintain the status quo of poverty, of racial segregation, of overinvestment in policing and jails, of underinvestment in resources that actually do create conditions of public safety. That is much larger than talking about one small municipality in North County. And I think the reason that it's appealing not only for folks here, but for a, a Department of Justice to come in and just talk about Ferguson is because that seems more achievable. That seems like something we can actually wrap our arms around and point to a success. But to your point, it doesn't really make a difference for, for poor people and black folks here in St. Louis. Well, that was going to be my question. Did you ever, I don't know if you all interact. Jackie, did you want to quickly, did you have anything that you wanted to add that Blake had said in that or... I think to Blake's point earlier, the system always recalibrates. And so we are, we do see the spotlight and the, the judiciary and the federal government spotlight on Ferguson and it's recalibrating within that spotlight. But we also see other municipalities that are not being watched or not being monitored who really haven't changed their practices all that much in spite of the, the movement to make these legislative changes and rule changes. and. Commissions have been in pl put in place to study and issue recommendations, but a lot of it is just maintaining status quo. We do need to talk about the fact that the Department of Justice that uh, entered into the consent decree with Ferguson is was much different than it is now. Mm -hmm. I Although mean, the attorneys are still the same from the case. It's right. still career uh, DOJ lawyers handling that case. But yeah, to Jason's point, it is a much different focus broadly at the top of the... Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my question is, going from the Obama Justice Department to the Trump Justice Department, I mean, it goes without saying that there's monumental difference in how they view not just Ferguson, but broader uh, issues that you're working with. What have you found... Um, the big differences and, and, and what what do you think that means for uh, the future of so-called criminal justice reform? Well, I guess the future is also dependent on what the next DOJ looks like and the one after that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not good. Jeff, When Jeff Sessions came in, um, and now, of course, A.G. Barr, um, it was clear that they had a different view of problems surrounding things like policing in America than did their predecessors. And, you know, I think their view was pretty much that there are no problems with police except that police have too many restrictions on them and um, have a, a bad rap unfairly. And so they stated pretty clearly early on that they were not going to continue with these policy and practice cases like we had in Ferguson, um, that the department was going to set a different um, different priorities. And I think we've seen that play out. And so there's just no, um, I don't know, to my mind, there's no, we're not operating under any illusion that DOJ is going to come in and save us and fix any problems. They're clearly not. 
I think they even made a formal policy stating that they weren't going to enter into consent decrees. So I think mm-hmm. from the very beginning, they've communicated that this would not continue. And so I think that the the DOJ has has kind of made it clear that they're not working on our side of the reforms. Did that influence at all the this, this shift now? I know you guys are still working on a lot of, of municipal reform cases. There's some that have been dragging on for five, six, seven years. Um did that inform at all the, the shift at the Justice Department level, inform at all the um, changes now? You guys are doing a lot, I noticed, of police reform cases. I think you have 14 or 15 related specifically to the Stockley protests and then others. Was that part of the consideration, not any of the consideration at all? Or what led you guys to kind of say police reform is now going to be where where we look and, you know, patterns and practices there? I don't think we necessarily have a map on the wall and say this is where we're going to next. A lot of our work, all of our work is community driven. And so we identify the issues that the community and the people that we work with, our partners, bring to us and we follow up with what their needs are and what their asks are. So it's not, you know, we don't have necessarily a groundwork for the next case or the next issue that we're going to work on. Instead, it's what do they want us to do and what do we need? What do we need to do? So in in terms of some of those police reforms, I know you guys aren't involved in the class action cases, which would really be kind of the vehicle to do mass reform. But what are you hoping comes out of some of your individual cases and then those larger class action cases in terms of how policing, especially in the city of St. Louis, is uh, is required to change? Yeah. So um, one one minor maybe correction. We do have one class action case in the the, um, policing sphere, which was filed back in. 2016, if I'm recalling correctly, against St. Louis County and St. Louis County Police, okay, okay. which is a case challenging this practice of wanteds. Um, and, and I think there's a really good example, actually, of exactly what you're talking about. Um, for those who don't know, wanteds are essentially a police tool that's used by departments all throughout the region that they believe um, allows them to arrest someone and submit them to questioning without ever going to a judge and getting an actual warrant without ever having what what is legally called a judicial determination of probable cause. So we filed this case back in 2016, have been litigating it ever since. Um, I won't bore you with all of the sort of procedural steps that we've taken, but um, that case is ongoing. But it's a really important example of a particular tool that is used. I mean, there are thousands of these wanteds are issued and executed every single year in this region that are, of course, disproportionately used, again, against poor people and black people in the region um, that have the effect of um, completely ignoring the sort of constitutional rights of folks who don't have enough political power to avoid these abuses. And that is reflective of that sort of attitude that's carried out in policing every day. And that's why it was really important for us to bring that case in 2016 and why we're still litigating it. Um, To your point, we have many more individual police cases. And I think, as Jackie said, that happened pretty organically. That really started in the wake of the Ferguson uprising because we had so many people in those moments of protest and of asserting their First Amendment rights that were then criminalized and subjected to physical abuse and arrest for doing so. And so that led to the first sort of series of of mostly protest-related police misconduct cases. And now we've had a wave of those following on the Stockley protests that have have done the same. And so the, the sort of I think, practice and and principle that we're fighting for in those cases, (coughs) 
excuse me, is not only that it's important to hold police accountable for their behavior and to hold them to constitutional standards, but also that it's really critical to be able to protect people who are doing the, the important um, civic service of raising their voices in protest and of bringing um, issues to the fore of our public dialogue that we can't allow people to be criminalized in those moments and subjected to, to state violence. So the organization hits 10 years. I think it's coming up sometime in November. Do you look back now and think, two questions, I guess. Do you look back now and think, oh my goodness, how do we make it to 10 years? And then what do you hope the next 10 Art City is able to do in the next 10 years? Well, I guess Jackie and I haven't been here the full 10. So uh, I've been here about four and a half. And it seems like more in some ways, although it seems like it went by very quickly in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, I do think, you know, sort of trying to place myself in the moment when the, the three co-founders, Thomas Harvey, MJ Voss, and John McKenna, were, were starting the organization, it certainly must have seemed very unlikely at that moment that it would make it 10 years and that it would be what it is now 10 years later. Uh, so I think, you know, I always just like to lift them up. And I think they had a tremendous amount of courage to do what they did and, and foresight. Um, and it's only because we've been able to bring on people like Jackie that have so much experience and expertise. Um, you know, our, we talk a lot about our criminal justice work, but we describe our three primary areas as criminal justice, housing, and homelessness. Um, and the housing space is one where Jackie spent her entire career, and we're trying to think about ways of really building the systemic advocacy around housing as well um, and, and really getting back to the roots of, of focusing on homelessness as something that sits at the intersection of those two issues of criminal justice and housing. Um, and I see that as being an area where we're really going to be deepening our advocacy moving forward. I have the benefit of having had been around, having been around for the 10 years of Arch City. <laughs> In fact, Michael John Voss, one of the co-founders, interned for my supervisor at Legal Services of Eastern Missouri. Because St. Louis. Because St. <laughs> Louis, exactly. And I remember this, this guy, Thomas Harvey, was always talking um, about his plan to make change. And I thought they had lost their minds with, with what they were trying to accomplish. And it was courageous. It, you know, everyone was betting against them. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the funds. They didn't really care about what people thought of them. They just did what was right. And we are here today because John and Michael John and Thomas had the vision for helping people and a legal system that was built for the people and not for the system and the structures and to perpetuate that inequality. Well, thank you both very much for talking about your organization and where it's headed for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Rachel? R. Lipman, two Ps, two Ns. And I don't know if each of you have personal Twitter accounts, but I think there people are more interested in how to find out more about Art City Defenders. I'm sure they are. And also, I don't have a personal Twitter account. You're very much smart. to the chagrin <laughs> of me. Good, uh, good move. <laughs> yes, you can find out um, tons about us, A, on our website at archcitydefenders.org. Um, we are on Facebook, Twitter, at Arch City Defense on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on everything. We also have a podcast. We also have a podcast under the arch. With you know. Action St. Louis, our partners. And it's an opportunity for us to expand on some of these topics that we've talked about today. Yes. And we have a, a racial justice roundtable on November 9th at the Deaconess Center that we still have um, plenty of spots for if you'd like to learn more about Arch City Defenders. Um, it's going to be all day, November 9th. And you can also go to our website or acdturns10.org to find out more about that.
Well, thank you very much, and until next time, so long. Fight the power! Fight the power! Fight the power! We got to fight the power! That's me! As the rhythm's designed to bounce with